0: Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Prime. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. According to the legal website, Avo, a witness is someone who testifies at a hearing because they observed or have direct knowledge of the events in question. Witnesses help lawyers to verify versions of events and play an essential role in the administration of justice in a court case. Generally speaking, there are three types or categories of witnesses. First, there are eyewitnesses. They can be helpful in solving a crime because they either saw what happened or saw some facet of it. When several witnesses have seen a crime, attorneys will interview them and then look for consistencies among their testimonies in order to determine what actually took place. Then there are expert witnesses that are sometimes called. Expert witnesses have superior education, knowledge, or experience in topics related to the case. They are often people like doctors, engineers, forensic experts, or psychologists. And then the third category are character witnesses. They vouch under oath about the good reputation and reliability of a person involved in the trial. For example, testimony from a character witness can be helpful when a defendant's honesty or morality is in question. I hope that you take away from our time this morning in God's Word that the Lord Jesus Christ is looking for eyewitnesses who have seen Him make new creations of old sinners with His grace, love, and mercy. He is looking for expert witnesses who have knowledge of the gospel and experience sharing it. And he is looking for character witnesses who can vouch that he's a God who means what he says, says what he means, and has the means to follow through with what he has said. Now more than ever before in church history, I think, There is a need for witnesses that will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help them, God. This is what the Apostle Paul wants to help us with today as we continue our series in the book of Colossians called Prime. I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's word with me to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 21 to 23. And as you turn there, Allow me to just briefly review what we've been learning about Colossians, the city, and this letter, after taking a week off from this series last week. You might remember the book of Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in the city of Colossae while imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel. He penned this letter in response to a visit he received from the founder of the church, a man named Epaphras. The Apostle has three goals in this letter. The first and foremost, to expel false teaching that was infiltrating the church. Secondly, to encourage the Colossian believers to avoid spiritual stagnancy by pursuing spiritual maturity. And then thirdly, to entreat their prayers for his ministry while he was incarcerated. Our theme verse for this series and the theme verse for this book is Colossians 1.18. If you haven't already done so, I want to encourage you to highlight it or underline it in your Bible. Let's say it out loud together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that he in everything, he might be preeminent. Preeminent is the English rendering of a Greek word used only here by Paul in the New Testament. It means to hold first place. The Apostle Paul will tell us, both directly and indirectly, throughout this letter, that putting Jesus anything less than first in our lives is putting him last. Sadly, one of the many areas that we can subtly knock Jesus out of first place is in our personal conversion testimony. Thus, our big idea for today is this: your truth-based testimony testifies the gospel is true. Did I get enough T's in there for you? Just trying to make it memorable and short. Your truth-based testimony testifies the gospel is true. A personal testimony is the believer's three to five minute story of how, where, and when and why they began a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's also one of the most effective tools that you can use while witnessing to an unbeliever. One of the many reasons every believer needs to have their personal testimony ready to be shared is found in 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says, Always, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you don't have a definable, explainable, reputable Christian testimony, then it raises the serious question Are you actually a witness? Have you actually witnessed the work of the risen Savior and the power of his gospel message? How you answer that question is very, very, very important. And it has eternal ramifications because, as we've seen in the court of law, every church contains some witnesses who try to testify that actually haven't seen anything. And then there are others that have seen the Lord work in their life, but they don't know how to testify. And that's why this topic is so important. And so with that, if you would look at verse 21 in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds... Oh, there's a lot packed in right there. I know it's hard to believe, but I'm going to get several minutes out of just that half of a, that verse, just that half sentence, okay? So here's point number one. I got a whole point out of this just half sentence. It's this. Without Christ, all sinners are rebellious enemies of God. Without Christ, all sinners are rebellious enemies of God. There are... Literary devices the Apostle uses in this passage, in these three verses, that need to be mentioned at the outset. First, the Apostle Paul contrasts the past spiritual condition of the Colossians with their current one, using uh, the words once and now. It's in the ESV. I think it's similar in the NIV as well. But notice in verse 21, who once, and then in verse 22 he says, he has now. And he did the same thing in chapter 2 of his letter to the Ephesians. When he wrote to them, he said to the Ephesians, You once, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And then he followed it with, but God, in Ephesians 2, 4. The next literary device that Paul uses here in Colossians 1:21 and 23 is switching from the impersonal, third-person voice in the previous passage to a more personal second-person voice in this passage. Notice how he says in in verses 21, 22, and 23, he says, you were alienated. In verse uh, 22, to present you holy. And then verse 23, you continue. Now, let's look at you were alienated. What does he mean by this? It comes from a Greek word that that means to be estranged, to be shut out of fellowship, or intimacy. This means that without a relationship with Christ, unbelievers don't get their prayers heard. They don't get to experience the Lord's comforting presence, nor do they have access to a boatload of privileges that the Lord reserves only for his children. They are on the outside looking in at the Lord's special interest group called the church. Why? Because the unrepentant sin of unbelievers separates them from God. Next, he says, you were hostile in mind. The word in the original text uh, means to hate, to oppose, or to be an enemy of someone. It means that every unbeliever and every believer, before they were born again, is seen by the Lord as an enemy by him. Why? Well, because they oppose his plans for the world with their sinful thinking. Sinful thinking always begets sinful behavior. This is why then Paul says in verse 21, you were doing evil deeds. Regardless of whether it was lying to your parents as a toddler, or uh, watching a little too much TV, or uh, cheating on a test in middle school, Uh, lusting after a classmate in high school, getting drunk in college, or pursuing your career goals without consulting the Lord as an adult, all unbelievers are in bondage to sinful behavior because of their sinful thinking that opposes what God wants. Unbelievers want nothing to do with God. They have no desire to have a relationship with Him. Or they run from God, or They try to conform him to fit their sinful desires. Sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? That's because it was. There's a tactic that Paul is using here with the Colossians and with us that I want to make sure we don't miss. And that is, you will never see Jesus as worthy of first place in your heart until you realize you are unworthy of knowing him. Sadly, what I find happens is that the longer certain people are saved, the further they seem to get from the point of their conversion, they begin to think, sadly, that and maybe subtly or subconsciously, that you know, I wasn't that bad before I got saved, and, uh, you know, I probably would have been okay without Jesus. And they forget just how messed up they were. Now, when we do realize this, that Jesus won't be worthy of first place in our hearts until we realize we're unworthy of knowing him, when we do realize this, Jesus becomes our hero. Jesus is the hero and we are the villains in his movie. Uh, Just as Batman spared the Joker, Woody and Buzz spared Lotso in the Toy Story, and Luke Skywalker spared Darth Vader in Star Wars. Jesus Christ spares any hostile unbeliever that will repent of their sin and trust in him alone for salvation. So, how do we walk in truth with, with what Paul's saying here about unbelievers or those of us that are saved at one time being alienated, hostile in mind, and doing evil deeds? What do we do with this? Well, here's an application for you. I think we need to avoid whitewashing our life before Christ. We need to avoid whitewashing our life before Christ. What? What God's word has to say about those who do not know Christ is nothing short of an indictment. The Lord says unbelievers are under his wrath, in Ephesians 2, 3, dead in their trespasses, Ephesians 2, 5, slaves to sin, Romans 6, 6, and on their way to hell. Matthew 25 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. In fact, just in case, I'm not being clear enough, I want to try my best here. Just in case you're missing what I'm laying down, I want you to pick it up here. If you are a born-again Christian, God's Word has nothing positive to say about your life before Christ. Nothing. Nothing. In my 25 years of studying God's word, I have not found one thing positive about somebody apart from Christ. Therefore, neither should we have anything positive to say about our life apart from Christ. And to get even more specific, this means your Christian testimony should never begin with, I was basically a good kid. No, 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 you weren't. No, not in the Lord's eyes. Even if you were cute at being a sinner, you were still a sinner. And I'm sure many of you were very cute back then. But Christ followers should never refer to their life before Christ as the good old days. Yeah, back then, man. Yeah, we had a lot of fun, didn't we? Yeah, stuck in sin. Separated from Christ, no hope in his world, on your way to hell, in bondage to sin, dead in your trespasses. That's how the Lord sees it. Nothing good. Nothing good. So your truth-based testimony testifies that the gospel is true. And Paul's first point here in verse 21 is that without Christ all sinners are rebellious enemies of God. Next. Although verse 21 sounds pretty grim, there's hope in verses 22 and 23. It gets better. Look at verse 22 with me. He says, He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So here's number two in your outline. Through Christ, any sinner can become a reconciled child of God. Through Christ, any sinner can become a reconciled child of God. In verse 21, the apostle explains what caused the Lord to provide a path to reconciliation through his son, Jesus Christ. Now in verse 22 here, he explains how and why the Lord did the reconciling. He has now... Reconcile. Paul uses a word here for reconcile that not only means to bring two opposing parties together back into harmony with one another, but it also means to do it fully and completely. Because we were all born enemies of God uh, with an inherited sin nature, reconciliation had to take place in order for a relationship with God to be possible. But this reconciliation had to be done on God's terms. The debt of sin had to be paid, and perfection was still required to be in the Lord's presence. And so, how did the Lord solve this problem? He sent His one and only Son, as we know from the Scriptures. And as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus paid our debt, and He achieved the perfection that we could not. For what purpose? Paul says in verse 22, to present you above reproach before him. to, To make it possible for anyone who repents of their sin and trusts in Christ alone for their salvation to stand before the Lord without accusation or condemnation. The scriptures repeatedly testify that genuinely saved people are forever changed people. So how do you know if somebody's saved? Well, you need to look at their life and see if they're changing. If there is no change, probably not saved. Why? Because take, for example, some of these lives from the scriptures that were transformed after meeting Jesus, and yet I, I've, I, I've only found a few examples, to be honest with you, where somebody encountered Christ and wasn't changed, and it was because their heart was hard, <laughs> and, and it didn't turn out good for them. But look at these examples here. The Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. She went from committing adultery to adding to the kingdom. Became a powerful witness for the Lord. There's the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5. He went from cutting himself to calling others to faith in Christ. Then there's Zacchaeus. We all know that great Sunday school song. He went from stealing to giving to the poor in Luke 19. And then there's Paul, of course, the author of this epistle. He went from persecuting the church to proclaiming the gospel. Paul was saved radically in Acts chapter 9. And then he describes his own testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 15 to 17, I think. He shares his own conversion story. And then there's the Philippian jailer. Oh, I reread this story. I'd forgotten about this one last night. I reread it. It's in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer. He's hard hearted and he's holding Paul and Silas hostage in prison for them preaching the gospel. There's an earthquake. Paul and Silas stay, they don't leave. Thus, the Philippian jailer gets to keep his life and his job, and he ends up having them over for dinner. Like, man, amazing story, Acts 16. So what do, we, what do we do with this? How do we walk in truth with what Paul's saying here in verse 22? Here's an application. We need to make Jesus the star of our story. When we share our Christian conversion testimony, we've got to make sure that Jesus is the star of the story, not us. Unfortunately, some Christians, either intentionally or unintentionally, shine the spotlight on what they've done for Jesus instead of what Jesus has already done for them. I I get to hear a lot of Christian testimonies when I do membership interviews, and I've done membership interviews for years at different churches, and it's always interesting to hear different types of membership interviews and and, uh, what it reveals about people and their understanding of the gospel and... But but if a Christian is asked, is ever asked, how do you know you're going to heaven? The answer should be something like, it doesn't have to be exactly this, but it should be something like, well, I, I was pretty much walking along, minding my own life, my own business, thinking I was too sexy for my shirt, and then Jesus dropped the Holy Spirit anvil on my head. He paid a debt that I owed when I didn't care, so I could have a life I don't deserve. Granted, I serve in the church, and I spend time at God's Word and all that, but it's because I love Jesus and because of what He did for me, but it doesn't earn me my salvation. Because as you've heard me say before, those that will be in heaven know they don't deserve to be there, and the ones that think they deserve to be in heaven will be in hell. So your truth-based testimony testifies the gospel's true. Next look at verse 23. Paul says, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Here's Number three, the third point on your outline genuine Christ followers will remain with the Lord until the end. Genuine Christ followers will remain with the Lord until the end. Paul does something else interesting in these three verses that I've seen him do in just about every other letter he writes he encourages his listeners by either reminding them how their present is better than their past without Christ, or he reminds them how their future with Christ will be better than their present. In essence, he says here, and I've seen him do this with the Ephesians, and I think he did it with the Corinthians, You're better off now than you were, and soon you'll be even better off than you are now. So in order to achieve this goal in verse 23, the apostle uses three metaphors to entreat and exhort the Colossians to continue in the faith. He says, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now at first glance, this might look in verse 23 like It's a conditional clause that suggests the believer can lose their salvation. However, that's not what he means. Paul knew that some of his readers were not saved yet, while others were. So in essence, Paul's saying here in verse 23, if you're truly saved, then do these three things. And he follows with three metaphors. The first, be stable. It comes from a Greek word, used in the construction industry in the first century. It means to lay a foundation, like for a house. So so they were supposed to remain firmly grounded in the teachings of the true gospel. The next metaphor is steadfast. The word in the original language means to be firmly seated, Uh, like a child who sits with his arms and legs crossed on the floor because he doesn't want the parent to move them from where they are. Uh, Paul says, be unmoved in your faith. Be firmly seated because it's harder to move someone that's seated on a solid foundation like Christ. Christ. And then the third metaphor that he uses here in verse 23 is not shifting. Not shifting. The city of Colossae was located in a region known for having earthquakes. And the word translated not shifting uh, can mean earthquake stricken. Paul, Paul was in essence saying if you're truly saved, then nothing will move you and Christ will sustain you to the end. And what is the hope of the gospel that he refers to? Well, it's the positive expectation that someday we'll be united with Christ and free from the effects of our sin. So, the three metaphors. Paul says, be stable, meaning uh, uh, sit on the foundation. And he says, be firmly seated on that foundation of Christ and the true gospel. And then, and then don't be shifted, when when things start to tremor or move, remain firm, immovable. So how do we apply this? Well, I think we need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. Paul told the Corinthians to do that in 2 Corinthians thirteen five. He 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 said. Examine yourself, because there are some people that think they're saved. They think they're born again because either the family they grew up in, the church they attended, or maybe the morals they live by. They they can miss the gospel, or maybe they're just so familiar with the gospel story that it just it's it it hasn't moved their heart. It's in their head, but it just hasn't moved their heart. And so so I think one of the applications from verse 23 is we, we need to ask ourselves, is there a definitive time in your life in which you repented of your sin, trusted in Christ's sacrifice for your sin, and received the gift of eternal life? Can can you point to a, a chapter in your life when you stopped running from the Lord and started running towards Him? When you were changed by the gospel? If so, the Lord promises to enable you to persevere through discouragement, persecution, or when tempted by false teachers. Like Paul was worried about the Colossians here. He, he was kind of hinting at false teachers, which are going to come up in chapter 2. But in essence, he's, one of the many things he's telling the Colossians in verse 23 here of chapter 1 is that, hey, if you really know Christ, he will get you through and you will be able to remain firm despite false teachers trying to lead you away. Now, if you're not sure whether, what it means to receive Christ, or if you're not sure whether you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'd love to talk to you after the service privately, or anybody that has a, one of these orange name badges can help you as well. Now, every believer, as you heard me say earlier, in, in Jesus Christ, needs to be able to share their three- to five-minute story of how Jesus transformed their life because it is the platform that allows you to get into the gospel message. And if our church is going to radically transform our region with the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ, then we must know how to share our personal testimonies, and then we need to be able to simply and succinctly articulate the gospel. This is one of the reasons I've been asking our men's and women's ministries over the past year to, at certain events to share personal testimonies. Because not only does it encourage the church to hear your story, and I get encouraged hearing your story, but also it's good practice. I mean, let's be honest, if you can't share your personal testimony in front of other believers at a church event, then you probably won't share it out in the world with an unbeliever when you really need to. And so how, how do you do this? Uh, I'm going to be very... Brief here, but how do you share your personal conversion testimony? When the Apostle Paul stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26, he gave a perfect example of how to do this. The Apostle spoke simply, logically, and clearly about his life before Christ, how he met Christ, and what his life was like after his conversion. So here's letter A. The first thing, the first question you need to answer is what was your life like before Christ? Before meeting Jesus, what was your life like? Now, I know some of you might be thinking, well, I don't remember. I was too young. I was five, I was six. Well, you can still talk about your addiction to goldfish crackers. You can talk about the temper tantrums you threw when you got told to pick up your room. You can talk about how you lied to your mom and dad about the toy that accidentally hit your sibling in their face. You don't know how, it just levitated and moved. I mean, there are things that you can talk about. But in a general sense, you want to describe the kind of life Jesus saved you from. Like, did you grow up in a church or an unchurched home? What lies did you believe about the Lord before you knew Him? Myths about Him that weren't true, that weren't based on Scripture? Uh, Where where did you try to find your sense of identity and significance and purpose? What what sins did you struggle with or were you ashamed of? Was it being a workaholic, an alcoholic, a people pleaser, an adulterer, a liar, a performer, an overachiever? You don't have to get too detailed here, but just covering basic themes. You don't have to go, you know, on January 6, 1986, I was sinning and doing this, and well, then I sinned again, and you don't have to go into that much detail. You just want to kind of cover the themes. Next, letter B, the second part of your testimony should be how you became a Christ follower. Who, who did the Lord use in your life? Was what is it, was it a, conver, a conversation, excuse me, with a friend, a relative, a coworker? How did you hear the plan of salvation, and where did it happen? Is there a particular scripture verse the Lord used to grab your heart? It could be helpful to quote that verse or to paraphrase it. Of course, you'd want to mention the fact that all of sin, the penalty of sin, is eternal death. uh, But forgiveness and eternal life are available through repentance and faith in Christ. I'll explain further how to share the gospel succinctly when we get to Colossians chapter 4. But for now, I think it's important to get your testimony down. How would you tell somebody the way you came to faith in Christ? If you were sitting on an airplane next to them or waiting in line at the store and struck a conversation or a coworker worker asks you about your Bible on your desk or something like that, how would you tell them? Again, Peter says, 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. In the next letter C, how has your life changed after deciding to follow Christ? This is important because if your faith hasn't visibly changed you, Then it probably hasn't saved you. How did did knowing Christ address some of the struggles that you had before you knew Him? After explaining this briefly, you'll want to transition to saying something like You know, the greatest change, though, has been knowing that my sins are forgiven, the burden of earning my salvation has been lifted. And my eternal life is secure. Not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done for me. So, three parts. What was your life like before meeting Jesus? How how did you become a Christ follower? And how has your life changed after deciding to follow Christ? Christ. Evangelist Billy Sunday, he was uh, very well known, and the Lord used him to lead thousands to faith in Christ in the 19th century and early 20th century. He used to tell a story about a Christian man who got a job in a lumber camp, whose workers had a reputation for being very immoral. As this Christian was about to leave town for his new job, A buddy of him congratulated him, then gave him this warning. Hey, uh, be careful, friend. Uh, If those lumberjacks ever find out that you're a Christian, you're going to be in for a hard time. About a year later, this Christian lumberjack used some vacation time to come back home and visit family and friends. and After catching up with his buddy who had given him that warning a year earlier, (laughs) The Christian was asked by his buddy, so did did the the fellows give you a hard time when they found out you were a Christian? To which the Christian replied, oh, no, no, not at all. They never even found out. May this never be true of us. Because Jesus is looking For witnesses that will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God. Because your truth-based testimony testifies that the gospel is true. So I leave you with this question. What's your story? Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, Thank you that you are in the business of changing lives. That those who encountered your son in the scriptures that genuinely wanted to know you were changed, set free from the bondage of sin. They had the burden of earning their own salvation lifted. And their eternal life was made secure. Lord, if there's anyone here today, or maybe listening online, that does not know where they will spend eternity, I just ask, please, I plead with you. Lord, would you reveal Jesus to them? Would you show them their sin, but also show them your great grace and mercy demonstrated through your Son? Lord, for those who maybe are saved and have been born again, but they've never shared their faith, never told their story, would you help them to think through or maybe even write down? I remember, Lord, I was taught how to do this in college with Camps Crusade. It was a great exercise to go through to write down what my life was like before meeting you, how I met you, and how my life changed. Lord, I thank you for the people that you used to bring me to faith in Christ. I thank you for the people that you used to bring those here to faith in Christ. Lord, would you now use us to be messengers that can share great old story of how Christ died for sinners, was resurrected three days later, so that anyone who repents and believes in him and follows him can have eternal life. Lord, would you use us to be a church that spreads that message through our story and through our witness as we proclaim the message. We pray this In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.